Hey, this is Kyle Turner, the lead pastor of Hillsong, Kansas City. Welcome to our podcast. We hope that it inspires you, encourages you, and most importantly, helps you get closer to Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, it's great to be here at Hillsong Church in Kansas City, one of my favorite cities on the planet. As some of you may know, Judith and I, my wife and I actually pastored here in Kansas City uh, back in the early 1980s. And this is actually where two of my children were conceived. So I will always have fond memories of Kansas City. Two of my best days alive. It's not just good to be with you, it's great to have you with us online, good to have the Plaza LinkedIn and Lansing, and it's always a privilege to be with your pastors. I love pastors, Kyle and Liz, they're extraordinary people, people of great wisdom, insight, compassion. Uh, They have a standard of excellence, but not just a standard of excellence, an innate ability to meet that standard of excellence that is far beyond most leaders that I know. And so uh, we love them and appreciate them and look to them and learn from them consistently. And so it's an honor to be here. Why don't you take your seats this morning and grab your Bibles and turn with me to John 20. John 20. I want to dig right in this morning and take advantage of every moment that I have with you. And I want to speak to something that a lot of people seem to be struggling with. I want to talk about doubt and deconstruction. And really, I want to speak to those who are struggling with doubt or wrestling with their faith or experiencing any sort of spiritual deconstruction on your journey. And I want to be clear as I roll into it this morning that I am not an expert in this in any fashion. But I have had my own experience with this. And if anything this morning, I want to help you to process through some of what you may be going through so you can come out on the other side of it stronger in your faith, more in love with Jesus, and better positioned for the future that he has for you. I'm not here to reinforce your doubt. I'm here to encourage you in your faith by fully recognizing what doubt does in our lives and how easy it is to slide down the slippery slope of doubt. So I've learned a few things on this journey that I want to share with you today. And I want to anchor all of this in the story of Thomas following the resurrection of Jesus. We are in this season right now called Eastertide. We don't often recognize it or even celebrate it in churches like ours, but in traditional churches, they often celebrate the period between Easter and Pentecost Sunday as Eastertide. Easter is not just an event for them, not just a a one-week experience for them. It's actually the course of time. And that's true in many parts of the world. In fact, today in our church in Russia, it is Orthodox Easter. So they didn't celebrate with us a few weeks ago. They're celebrating in Easter today. And all of that between Resurrection Sunday and Eastertide through that course leads up to Pentecost. I'm really believing for God to do something special across the life of our church on Pentecost Sunday this year. Would you believe with me? As we come into the next few weeks here leading up to the end of May, I'm just praying that God would prepare our hearts for that Sunday and that God would do again in our church across our locations what he did 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. 
that He would visit us, that He would pour out His Spirit upon us, that He would ignite a fire deep within us, that He would reconcile and restore us, that He would visit us with power from on high and position us to be His witnesses in the world. So all of this leads up. So I'm living in the aftershocks of Easter and the advance of Pentecost Sunday. And I want to talk to you out of that this morning from the Gospel of John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Ironically, he is also the one writing this passage. He suffers not from any lack of confidence. He, he, he is the one whom Jesus loves. And if you're not aware of it, he will let you know that every opportunity that he has. She comes back to Simon and to John. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. I want you to watch this. They have taken the Lord's body. And, and we don't know where they have put him. I'm dropping down to verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said to them. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds, not the scars, but the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Verse 24, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, everybody say Thomas. Can we still talk in church? <laughs> Whisper. Put your hand up in front of your mouth. Whisper, Thomas. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. So they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it until I see or unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my finger into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas the twin was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he looked at Thomas, put your finger here, and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound into my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. Now, I want to ask you an important question this morning. What kind of doubt do you struggle with? And I realize that question is a little presumptuous for some people, which, by the way, thank you for that beautiful music behind me. Big round of applause for the beautiful worship team this morning. I realize that for some people, that question might be a little presumptuous because there will be many people in the room today, both here on the plaza, at Lansing, and in online church today, who would say, I've never struggled with doubt of any sort. And if that's the case, uh, I just want to affirm that. I want to appreciate and applaud that. And my purpose here today is not to introduce doubt into your life because I recognize that there are a few people who have found it easier to believe than others. And from the beginning of their faith journey, they just live with this, this unusual sense of confidence in the Word of God. 
But I also realize that those people are the exception. Most of us, at some point or another on our journey, are going to bump into doubt. We're going to encounter doubt. We're going to entertain doubt. And some of us are even going to wrestle with doubt. And I'm, I'm not talking about the kind of doubt that questions whether or not Patrick Mahomes will have an offensive line to protect him this coming season. There is some doubt in that, however, but moving right along. I'm, I'm talking about the kind of doubt that relates to your faith in God or in the credibility of the Bible, or your confidence in the character of God, or maybe your trust in the faithfulness of God. Maybe there are moments in your life when you look around and you say, I believe that God did what he did for people in days gone by, and I believe that he desires to move in the lives of other people, but when it comes to myself, that's where I struggle to believe. How could God do for me what he's done for others? I think we all wrestle with doubt from time to time. I was raised in a pastor's home from the earliest of days. I was taught to believe in God's word. And on an ordinary year, I try to read the Bible through from cover to cover. I've been on this spiritual journey for many, many years. But the fact is, there are still moments in my life when I struggle with doubt. Moments when, when I wrestle with the scripture. Moments when I wonder, how do I reconcile what I see in the world? How do I reconcile some of what I see in the scripture with what I know to be true about God? What I know about his goodness and his grace and his kindness and compassion. How do I square that up? Now, sometimes for me, it happens when I begin the year reading through the Bible, starting off on a high note. Come on, is it just me? You roll into it with a lot of confidence you read Genesis, you read about the creation account, you read about God's lavish goodness on humanity, you read into Exodus, you get kind of stuck in the law. And then for me, when I start to roll into the book of Joshua, and I try to reconcile what I see there with Israel taking land and conquering people, and I see lives lost, and I see all of the devastation that occurs, even though I know this is God protecting his people, even though I know this is God protecting his plan, even though I understand theodicy and how you make sense of it all, there's still a part of me that says, how do I square this up? How do I reconcile Jesus with Joshua? How do I synthesize the Old Testament with the new? How do I bring together this one God who is eternally consistent, and yet I see different expressions of him based upon what I'm reading in the scripture? And so I wrestle with that even in my own life. And I know I'm not alone in that. In fact, over the last few years, we've seen a number of Christian leaders who have been very public in their deconstruction. Some of them have started off critically analyzing the scripture only to end up abandoning their faith. They've allowed deconstruction of their faith to become the destruction of their faith. And that breaks my heart. Not just for them, but for younger people who look to them because I genuinely believe there's a better way. 
I believe God wants us to be able to wrestle with the questions and the tensions that are present in our faith and yet come out on the other side having resolved some things in our soul with a deeper faith and a stronger faith and a a more connected faith. I, I want you to know there's nothing wrong in asking questions about our faith. But don't get stuck in the questions. Ask the questions with the heart that is leaning into the journey. Ask the questions with the heart not intent upon deconstructing God or reconstructing God into an image of your making, but questions that are asking God from the position of longing to know Him, longing to understand Him, longing to embrace His plan for humanity and be positioned for a flourishing life. There's nothing wrong in asking questions. In fact, I really believe that the church should be the place where we can ask questions about our faith. I believe this should be the place where we process our confusion and misunderstanding. It should be where we wrestle safely. But we shouldn't wrestle just for the sake of wrestling. We shouldn't wrestle just because other people are wrestling. And we shouldn't wrestle because it's theologically trendy. We should wrestle because we desire to know God and be known by God. And in wrestling with God, we come to a deeper revelation of our faith. We should wrestle with God to deepen our faith, not to abandon our faith. I know Pastor Kyle has been talking about the church. And I just want to propose today that the church should be the place for safe wrestling. In fact, it should be the safest place on the planet to wrestle. Let let me talk about what I mean by safe wrestling. As I mentioned earlier, two of our children were conceived here in Kansas City, and our youngest was conceived in Sweden. I don't know why I feel compelled to bring that up, except that years ago when our kids were really small, I did what most families do. Every time their birthday came around, I said, hey guys, let me tell you about when you were born, the day you were born. Any parents ever do that? It means a lot to us. And when they were really young, they wanted to hear the story. Tell me about when I was born. Well, then you reach a certain point in time when they aren't interested any longer and you get a little, a lot of eye rolling and, oh, do we have to go through this again? And so about the time they were teenagers and we were celebrating a birthday, I said, hey guys, let me tell you about the day you were born only to get that reaction. So I shifted my tactics. And from that day forward, I said, hey guys, Let me tell you about the night you were conceived. (laughs) Guess what? They wanted to hear about the day they were born. (laughs) It's amazing how that shifted. I love being a father, and our oldest son is 34. I hope I get this right in Jesus' name. Our middle son is 30, and our youngest is 29, soon to be 30. I always just give estimates to their age rather than precise dates. Now, when our kids were young, I enjoyed wrestling with them. My wife didn't get the concept. I was raised with three boys, and uh, there was a lot of testosterone in our home, and, and we wrestled pretty intently, and my parents were okay with that. My wife, on the other hand, she came from a family of six with four sisters and one brother much older than her. So there was other sorts of things, like hair combing and crying in her house, and, and, but not wrestling. So when our kids got old enough to begin to wrestle, and we actually 
begin to go at it. I don't mean WWF fake wrestling. I'm talking about real wrestling. Judith freaked out. She, she thought I was going to hurt the kids. But on the other hand, I understood the concept of safe wrestling, which every father does. And that is, you can make it seem to be more intense than what it actually is. You make a lot of grunting sounds, a lot of hand gestures. You, you go through all these motions, but at the same time, you have it under control. It's a safe atmosphere. Hey, what could happen in our churches if we said to the world, this is a place where you can wrestle with our faith, and at the same time, we didn't freak out over their wrestling. We didn't condemn their wrestling. We didn't reject their wrestling. We were just so secure in our own faith that we made room for people insecure in their faith, and this could actually become a place for safe wrestling. See, the deeper issue for us is this. Can we ask questions of our faith in a way that leads to a greater understanding of God instead of cynicism and a wholesale rejection of truth? Can we question God and hold our faith and keep both in tension in a safe environment? In other words, can we become like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who searched the scriptures without allowing themselves to become critical and judgmental. Listen to Acts 17 to verse 10. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went out to the Jewish synagogue. And when the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. Notice this. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, as a result, as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek men, women and men. Notice the connection. The deeper they searched, the more they believed. I just want to say to you here today, don't ever take what's preached over this pulpit as the gospel truth without going back to search out the gospels for yourself. Don't ever take what's presented here as being absolute without going back to the scriptures, not with a heart of cynicism or skepticism or judgmentalism, but with a heart that simply says, I want to trust but verify. I want to lean in, but at the same time, I want to know for myself. Whether it's Terry or Pastor Kyle or Pastor Brian, I'm going to receive it at surface value, but I'm going to be like a Berean who doesn't just take what I've heard, but I'm going to take what I've searched out, what I've dug out, what I've embraced, what God has revealed to me, and I'm going to build my life on that kind of foundation. I think that's the tension. Can we listen with receptivity? Can we search the scriptures with consistency and do all of that without skepticism, cynicism, or judgmentalism? Now, let me take you back to the story of Thomas before we're through here. Shortly after the resurrection, we see almost every one of the disciples wrestling with some form of doubt and, and deconstruction. It's not just Thomas. It's, it's every single one of them. But it always ends with the reconstruction of their faith in a much more meaningful way. They ask questions, but they keep bringing their questions back to Jesus. 
And, and can I just say to you that that's the safest place to bring your questions. As long as you keep coming back to Jesus, keep asking the questions, keep presenting the concerns, keep wrestling with your faith intention. In fact, I, I think that's what Jesus longs for. I think he longs for a generation of followers who have learned to walk through the desert of deconstruction and doubt towards a deepened relationship with him. Because when everything is said and done, this is not about deepening my fact pattern. This is not about deepening my body of knowledge. This is not about deepening my ability to recite scripture verse by verse. It's about deepening my relationship with Jesus, who is the word of God incarnate. I want you to think for a moment about the disciples. Think about the women who were a part of that discipleship company. When Mary goes to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday, she doesn't go there to celebrate the resurrection. In fact, we read it. She goes there to grieve. I imagine Mary taking flowers along with her. I imagine Mary going to mourn the death of Jesus. What we know is when she got there, she said, he's not here. They have taken his body away. That, that isn't the same as he has risen from the dead. That indicates to me somebody has come here. Somebody has taken his body. He didn't raise, he hasn't been risen from the dead. It, it, and from there she goes back. Now, I want to shift after that and take you over to the Gospel of Mark because the Gospel of Mark picks up the story after Mary says this. Mark chapter 16 shows us in verse 9, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping. They were wrestling with doubt and unbelief and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive, well, what did we miss? Well, synthesizing the Gospels, here's the full story. Mary goes to the tomb, wondering why it is empty, where they have taken his body. She then comes back, and on her way to the disciples and back to the tomb, she encounters the gardener, thinking that he was a gardener, only to discover that the gardener was in fact Jesus. So Mary now has this paradigm shift. She goes from grieving to believing. But the disciples aren't really caught up to speed with her yet. And that's what often happens in our lives. We have these shifts from doubt to faith, from deconstruction to reconstruction, and we have people around us, whether it's our friends, those who sit next to us in church, maybe even our kids who aren't where we are on the journey, and we've got to make room for them to come on the journey with us rather than condemning them for not being as quick to believe. So here's Mary. She now has seen him and has communicated that. But, verse 11, when she told them Jesus was alive and had seen him, they didn't believe her. They, the disciples. Verse 12, afterwards he appears in a different form to two of them. This is the Emmaus Road. They're walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rush back to tell the others. But no one believes them. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together and rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. So it's not just Thomas. Down through the ages, Thomas has taken a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas. 
But he's not alone in his doubt. He's not alone in his deconstruction. Every single one of them are going through the same thing with their faith following the crucifixion. And that's okay because a faith that isn't tested is not a faith at all. In fact, a faith that isn't tested is a hope. It's a presumption. It's wishful thinking. It's only when our faith is tested, when our faith is tried, when we find ourselves walking through the fires of life, coming out on the other side with a testimony to the goodness of God, that we can realize that what we had as hope has now become a tested faith. Thomas goes through this. I want to talk about him, but before I do, let's just talk for a moment about why people doubt in general. Well, why, why do we struggle to believe? I mean, we're believers, right? We, we're here willingly. Come on. So he's like, I'm not sure. My wife, my friends, peer pressure. No, we're, we're believers. So as believers, by definition, well, why is it that we often struggle to believe? Let, let me give you five types of doubters in the world. You might find a bit of your story in one of them. First of all, the world is filled with natural doubters. These are the people whose natural temperament just causes them to question everything in life. So they bring that in their approach to the scriptures. They question everything from the maps to whether or not the gold edges on the Bible are actually gold. Which, by the way, they were in the beginning. Go home and file that off and put it in the offering. No, it's probably not at all that these days. They just naturally question everything. There are some people just born that way. My oldest son is that way. When he was a kid, he questioned everything. I know every kid does, but his questions were novel. His questions had follow-up questions. In fact, I'll never forget one day, uh, one of the young men in the church who had a landscaping company was working in our yard, and he came and knocked on the door, and I went to the door, and he said, Pastor, you got to get this kid in the house. He said, I can't keep doing your yard if you let him out when I'm trying to work. He's driving me crazy. He's asking crazy questions, questions like, why do trees have leaves and people have hair? Why don't people have leaves and trees have hair? He said, get him out of here in Jesus' name. I can't answer his questions. He was just a natural skeptic. Now, it's worked for him because he's a U.S. attorney. He was an assistant attorney general. So he now questions people under bright lights and calls it interrogation. So it's worked for him, but he's approached his faith that way. He loves Jesus, he builds church, but he's going to ask the kind of questions that people like me just take for granted. And that's okay. There's room at the table for people who have natural questions and natural doubts. Then there are intellectual doubters. These are the people whose academic questions have never been sufficiently answered to their satisfaction and so they're struggling with doubt. They don't just doubt everything. They, they doubt certain things that they cannot rationally explain. Their, their doubts rest in their ability to comprehend the mysteries of the Scripture. It is highly academic for them. It is highly intellectual for them. And, and that's the kind of doubter they are. Number three, there are wounded doubters in the world. Wounded doubters are people who walk through painful circumstances in life. It's depleted their faith. 
They want to believe, they long to believe, they desire to believe, but pain blocks their belief. They're not looking for intellectual answers as much as emotional reassurances. And there are moments in the presence of God when their doubts are overwhelmed and that gives them another week on the journey or a month on the journey or a year on the journey. And and then they have to wrestle again. And in the presence of God, they're reassured. And it's sort of that process, two steps forward and one back. But over time, they're making progress. They're wounded, but they're not intentional. They're just dealing with things like church hurt, and they're committed to getting through it. They love Jesus, but they battle with pain. Number four, there are rebellious doubters. People who doubt because they equate faith with conformity. And since they're not willing to conform to anything or anyone, they doubt based upon a misunderstanding of faith. They're rebellious in their doubting but it's because they don't understand the nature of family and faith. And then finally, number five, there are disappointed doubters. Now, they're a lot like wounded doubters. They've asked God for something. They haven't seen it come to pass. And so their faith has been diminished. It's like doubt is a low-grade fever in their life. They're dutiful, but disappointed. And it's hard for them to expect God to move on their behalf. I think the church world is filled with those kinds of doubters, disappointed doubters who are dutiful, who show up, who are battling church hurt, battling some sort of experience in life, and as a result, they're doubting. And I want to help you in the next few minutes if you fit into those categories. Let's talk about Thomas for a moment. It's hard to think of doubt without Thomas. He's kind of the poster boy for doubt. Doubting Thomas, we call him. Or as Jesus identified him, he was Thomas Didymus. Didymus means double. Thomas was a twin. Thomas, I I like to think of him as (laughs) T-Diddy. Thomas Didymus, Thomas the twin. T-Diddy is a doubter, but he's not alone in his doubt. Let me tell you a little bit about T. Diddy for just a moment. T. Diddy experiences enormous courage, first of all. Not all doubt is the same. You can have layers of courage and layers of doubt and layers of courage. It can be something you're sorting through, and if so, keep sorting. First of all, he's got great courage. We see Thomas emerging in John chapter 11 when the disciples are are thinking about going to Bethany with Jesus. Lazarus has died. Jesus said, four days later, it's time to raise him from the dead. And when he does, the disciples say, this is not a good move. The last time we were in Bethany, the religious leaders said they wanted to kill you. And so we shouldn't make this move. And and when they said that, Thomas steps up in John 11, 16, and Thomas says, let us go that we may die with him also. That doesn't sound like the voice of a doubter to me. That is a man of enormous courage who is sold out, who says, come on, guys, we're going to Bethany, the suburb of Jerusalem, and if he dies, he won't die alone because we're rolling in like Braveheart here. We're rolling in together. We're going to stand with him and lay down our lives if necessary. Second, T. Diddy doesn't accept easy answers. In fact, John's gospel mentions him once before the crucifixion. It's Thursday night. They've just come out of the Passover. Jesus has broken the bread. Jesus has said to Judas, 
do whatever you have to do. And in that moment, the disciples know something's going down. Something, something bad is about to take place here. And they surround Jesus, and Jesus rolls into John chapter 14. I love it. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you that it is. And I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, you'll know the way. Now, Thomas speaks up, and he says, uh, we don't even know where you're going. How could we know the way? He doesn't get what Jesus is saying, and he gives voice to what the other disciples are feeling. Thomas is asking the hard questions here, but Thomas is the kind of guy that when his faith is secure, his faith is hard won, but it lasts for a lifetime. There are many of you that are wrestling with doubt, but once you land in your faith, you're going to have the kind of faith that'll carry you through not just weeks and months and years, but difficult times because a hard-won faith is a faith that goes the distance in life. Number three, T. Diddy was fully devoted to Jesus. Was with him in the last days, with him during the triumphal entry, with him when he debated the Pharisees, with him during the crucifixion, and then he disappeared following the resurrection. Why is that? I think Thomas is like everybody in this room. When we are in pain, or those who are in online church, or, or those who are watching us from Lansing or the Plaza, I think we're all the same in this way. When we're hurting, we do one of two things. We run from community, or we run to community. There are a lot of people hurting in the world today, and they're showing up for church. They're showing up for connect group. They're showing up to lean into their friends. But there are a lot of people like Thomas, when they're hurting, they hide out. And I get it, because I'm one of those people. If I'm hurting, I'm not showing up for the party. I'm sitting alone in a corner like a mushroom somewhere covered in poo. I mean, that's your, I don't even know where that came from. Can we edit that before that goes out live? It is what happens to a mushroom, but I should have censored that before I came out. I'm sitting alone in the corner. Because that, that's, that's how I am. That's who I am. And Thomas is that guy. He's not an unbelieving skeptic. He's a wounded believer. I think there are more people like that than we realize. Which is why when you came into church this morning, you would have walked past a sign in one of our locations anywhere on the planet and everywhere in the world that says, Welcome home. Welcome home. That sign is not just there for insiders. It's not just there for believers. That sign is there for skeptics. That sign is there for doubters. That sign is there for people kicking the tires on our faith. That sign is for dutiful daughters and prodigal sons, or for prodigal daughters and for dutiful sons. If you have doubt, welcome home. If you have questions, welcome home. If you're uncertain, welcome home. If you're a skeptic, welcome home. If you're searching for truth, welcome home. If you're struggling with church hurt, welcome home. If you struggle to accept the Bible, welcome home. And if you are fully persuaded, welcome home. This house is for humanity. Come on, stand with me. For all people everywhere, this is a safe place to wrestle. Now, I don't know what happened when Thomas saw Jesus, when Jesus shows up eight days later. 
There are all kinds of pictures that show Thomas touching the wound, putting his hand into the side. I don't know if that happened. I'd like to believe that Thomas just saw him and immediately believed. But, but if he did, it's okay because Jesus invited Thomas to handle him. See, we don't have a distant Savior. We don't serve a standoff Savior. We serve a Savior who says, okay, handle me, wrestle with me. If you want to know whether or not I keep my word, step up here and grab me by the hand and thrust your hand into my bleeding side and you will know. I invite you into proximity. I invite you to engage me. I don't have easy answers for deconstruction. And I probably raised more questions than I've even addressed here today. But that's okay, because the purpose of this message is not to solve problems and to answer questions. It's to invite you into the wrestling match. Wrestle with Him. And as you wrestle with Him, you'll discover that He is who He is, that His Word is what it is, that He can be trusted, He is faithful, and He will do what He has promised He will do. Deep doubt is often the prelude to a deeper faith. And that's my prayer for those who struggle with doubt here today. Keep wrestling, keep leaning in, keep showing up, keep asking questions, and eventually I believe that you'll have the very moment that Thomas did. When Thomas, after seeing him, said, my Lord, my God. Now there's two ways of doing that. You can say, my Lord, my God. Or you can say, my Lord and my God. For Thomas, it became a declaration of revelation because he saw Jesus and he knew him to be exactly who he is. Would you bow your head here this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that I've had this morning of just sharing with those who are in this room, those online, those at the plaza, those who are at Lansing. God, I just pray for those who are processing doubt, struggling with doubt. Maybe they're not even to the place that they're struggling with it. Maybe they would just say, I have it. Lord, would you be with them? Would you step into their room just as you did over 2,000 years ago with Thomas, the one that you loved? Would you reveal yourself? Would you open your eye, their eyes? Would you bring them on the journey of increasing revelation? I invite you to do that today, knowing that this church is a safe place to wrestle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.